0: So that's our text. If you'd open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Isaiah chapter 31. The topic there Isaiah warns the women of Jerusalem about their spiritual complacency. The title of the message The Real Housewives of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we've gathered together, and as we do, you see us as your temple on earth. You promised, Lord, in the revelation that you would walk in the midst of the churches. And so, uh, Lord, we, we have a sense from you that you are specially present here. You're obviously omnipresent, but there's a special presence when the church gets together. You're here to minister to us, Lord, and to set us free to minister to others. And then, of course, Lord, individually, we're also the temple of your spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. He's a person, Lord, who can guide and direct us as uh, to our life's path as long as we would yield. And we have the word of God, Lord, which you say is alive and powerful. It's made that way by you, not through my words or the words of anyone else here. But by you, Lord, taking these words and bringing them alive in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. All of that is a spiritual work. All we can do is humble ourselves before you and ask that you would do not only what you want to do, but more and more. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Who did not say, let them eat cake? Well, that would be Marie Antoinette. Now, it's true, the Queen of France was given to excess, she for example purchased 300 dresses every year. Or some of you ladies are saying excess. <laughs> As the story goes, when she was told her subjects had no bread to eat, she said, "Well, let them eat cake." It exposed how out of touch she was. It certainly sounds like her, but she never said it according to historians. It is regarded as a cliche whose authentic origin is difficult to trace. It does capture an attitude, though, though, and the women of the southern kingdom of Judah had that attitude. In chapter 32, verses 9, 10, and 11, the Lord accuses them of having grown complacent. It can mean careless or carefree. At least one Bible version uh, translates it rather as overconfident. I like that. I like it because one of the major themes of this entire section of Isaiah is an overconfidence they had in the world and what we might call an underconfidence they had in the Lord. It's summarized in chapter 31, verse 1, where we read, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. They trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And so they were uh, underconfident in the Lord's ability to deliver them, and they put their confidence in the world. Our look at Judas' history gives the Lord an opportunity to check our confidence levels, whether it is overconfidence in the world or underconfidence in Jesus. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Do you put any confidence in the world? Or number two, do you put all of your confidence in the Lord? take a look at having confidence in the world starting in chapter 31. Oswald Chambers wrote faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. Now that translates into being in situations that we don't understand at the time and many times because of that we seek help from the world from fleshly carnal avenues rather than Seeking the Lord's help. Pastor Alistair Begg suggests the following as an illustration. I think you'll understand it. A preoccupation with psychological theory has, in many cases, eroded confidence in the scriptures. When the essence of the human predicament is defined in terms of a lack of self esteem, it is almost inevitable that people will be directed towards the couch, but not the cross. Now That's a formula you can think of. You can eliminate couch, have it as a blank there, and put just about anything else that people look towards for help. Cash, uh, you know, communication, whatever, whatever word begins with C, uh, so that it matches. But anyway, so instead of looking to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to look to these things in the world. And not to excuse it, but it, it's natural for us especially if you got saved later in life, because for many, many years you had confidence in the world or you, you were looking for things to be confident about in the world uh, to, to help get you through. And so we have a kind of a knee-jerk reflex to go do that again. We don't want the worldly sources. We want the spiritual source, which is Jesus. And so verse 1 of chapter 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen, because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. The southern kingdom of Judah, like every kingdom in that region, was afraid of the advancing Assyrian army. They were the juggernaut of that time. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. To meet the threat, Judah entered into a mutual protection agreement with Egypt. God, who had parted the Red Sea and drowned Egypt's army many centuries earlier, was ignored in favor of a new Egyptian army. And that's kind of the, the way it is. Maybe the Egyptians or the Israelis thought, well, God did that then, but he's not doing that now. He's doing something else now. So we, you know, we, we could trust him back then, but now we're on our own. Uh, and, and I think that's the attitude that we sometimes had. And, and yet... I would suggest to you that just the fact that Israel became a nation in May of 1948 indicates that God is still intervening in human history, just like he always has. And then if you've never read them, uh, get online or grab a book about uh, the wars that Israel has fought. And even the secular books will list many miraculous uh, things that happened. And just the idea that Israel could not be wiped out by her Arab neighbors, uh, just, you know, it's a a real Goliath situation, only there's, you know, Goliaths everywhere. And and yet God has preserved Israel, uh, but, you know, we talk now about the dome over Israel and her military strength and all of that, and, you know, God bless them, but uh, the Lord's gonna step in again and say, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. The underlying problems we have are spiritual and you cannot fight the spiritual with carnal strategy and weaponry. Ask yourself, what spiritual resource or resources do I need to be an overcomer in my situation? Because if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, those resources are yours. Often in action movies, there's a scene in which the hero chooses his or her weapons from a large arsenal of weapons. The choice is based on the, uh, the operation at hand and the opponents. And, and so you have a huge arsenal of spiritual weapons to choose from. So let's say you're feeling pressed at work. People spend a lot of time at work, so it, it's an illustration that works. And, and so you're at work, and you're having trouble with your boss, or you're a boss having trouble with your employees, or maybe there's this one guy or gal, or something's going on that's just, you know, uh, causing you a, a pressure, it's a trial. It's a test. You recognize that. There are probably a lot of carnal things you could try to do, like get another job or file a grievance or all that. And all of that can be fine, as the Lord would lead you. Paul the Apostle sometimes said nothing about his citizenship. Other times he said, oh, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. It just depended on the situation and how the Holy Spirit led him. But, but probably in your situation, the thing you're struggling with right now probably isn't a change of venue or people It's probably your need to find the spiritual resource God wants in that situation and to apply it. It's probably going to be something like forgiveness or uh, the joy of the Lord or patience. And then it becomes something between you and the Lord, not the other people. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And when I talk about you and the Lord, what I mean is the Lord says, hey, I, I can give you patience. You can forgive. You can do all of these things because I've strengthened you. Will you? The situation requires humility. It requires submission. It requires prayerfulness, those kinds of things. And we're not prone to that. All you have to do is spend 10 minutes on Twitter, and you'll find out, among Christians, and you'll find out that we are a violent mob out there wanting to decapitate each other for what we believe. Although I guess we don't tweet anymore, we X, as I said earlier, right? Because now it's called X for some strange reason. Maybe X marks the spot, I don't know. But uh, it's not between you and your job, it's between you and the Lord to figure that out. And I've known people who have, you know, missed this for years and years and years, when God could have gotten them out of it, All they had to do was have the right heart and the right attitude, which is available to them in the Lord. Verse 2. Yet he also who is wise and will bring disaster and yet not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. God would dispatch the Assyrian army by sending the angel of the Lord, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus before his incarnation, And the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers overnight, wiped out the Assyrian army. He said he'd fight for them and he kept his word. Is there some word that God has given you that you think he has not kept? Well, you need to return to the place where you know that he certainly cannot renege on his word. He can't. If he's definitely told you something in God's word about your situation, about who you are, about where you're going, whatever it might be, He cannot renege. It's just that you may not see the answer for a long time or ever in this life. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the heroes of the faith and the heroines of the faith, they died without receiving many of their promises. God is a promise keeper, but he's not bound by our time level, uh, our our timetables, rather. Verse 3, now the Egyptians are men, not God. And their horses are flesh, they're not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall. They all will perish together. Why look to mere men when you can go to God? He said, the people you think are going to help you, they're going to fall, you're going to fall because I am the only one that can help you. Chances are the situation you are in has been orchestrated by God to show you some Egypt in your life and get you back to being confident in him. John Newton wrote this, the Lord is my strength, yet I am prone to lean on reeds. And so rather than stand on a firm foundation, we lean on things that are destined to be destroyed or break. Verse four, thus says the Lord, uh, a lion roar, as a lion roars and as a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. The history of the Assyrian invasion was that 46 of Judah's fortified cities would be destroyed by the advancing army. God would, however, protect Jerusalem in the ways that we've talked about. And so, verse six: Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, sin which your own hands have made for yourselves. They worship the gods of their pagan neighbors. Now, it wasn't just that they were enamored of, of little idols that would be made, little silver and gold, uh, you know, icons and all of that. They were drawn to the practices of their pagan neighbors. They were drawn in by their lusts and the desires of their flesh because worship of these pagan deities, 99.9% of the time, involved sexual perversion and perverted sexual behaviors. That's how they worshipped, you know, or or other carnal behaviors, drunkenness and uh, all those things that go with it. Their worship service was an orgy Worse than that, they adopted the practice of sacrificing their infants to Molech. And they would give their babies to this molten hot idol and watch them scream and burn to death. And so it wasn't just that they had trinkets. How far gone are you? Or someone you know? Jesus can rescue you. People have been saying for centuries that he is a greater savior then you are a sinner. I mean, people get pretty far out there. Some of the people you're praying for, you might think, you know, that person's never gonna come to the Lord. He's reprobate, he's gone. Keep praying. Come up after service and pray for that person. See what the Lord wants to do. If you're here this morning and and you're involved in some anti-Christian reprobate lifestyle and you think you're not savable, you are. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes judgment. But until you die, you have an opportunity to receive Christ and know the forgiveness of your sins and have abundant life. Verse 8, then Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You don't pull the mast off an old lone ranger and you don't mess around with the angel of the Lord. Now we're gonna come back to the opening verses of chapter 32, but for right now to maintain continuity and theme, skip to verse nine. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. I read this synopsis, Stereotypical Barbie and a wide range of fellow Barbies all reside in Barbieland, a matriarchal society where all women are self-confident, self-sufficient and successful. Spoiler alert: in the new movie, Barbie has an existential crisis and chooses to become human. Think of the modern or the women of Judah, rather, as Barbies going around in pink chariots instead of corvettes. As if they hadn't a care in the world telling everyone to eat cake. That that's kind of what's going on here. Not to pick on the women, the men were, you know, inevitably worse and and they were the leaders, but the women were careless and carefree and overconfident, going around shopping and acting like nothing was going on. But in verse ten, in a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Their wealth derived from the harvest, and it would fail the next year. There would be nothing. Do you realize how quickly we could wake up and have nothing because it's all been seized by some government? Once there is no cash, it's pretty much over in terms of control because who's ever in charge will be able to do pretty much anything they want with the population. Uh, and so don't put we can't put our trust in these things i'm not telling you what to do we're not going to start prepping next week you won't be able to sit in the balcony because we're going to have you know pallets of food up there we're not headed in that direction we're called to preach the gospel and that's as far as my thinking goes but the idea here this whole section is don't trust in other things trust in the lord and Social Security, I guess. <laughs> Social Security has been, has been going bankrupt since I was a baby. Right? Every Oh, it's going to be bankrupt next year! One of these years it is going to be bankrupt. As is everything else. We are so close to being in the third world. And all I have to do pretty much is flip a switch. So, again, don't be overconfident in the things of the world. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He loves, you know, to follow God. He's obeying the scriptures and all. And Jesus says, in your situation, your unique situation is this. You're overconfident in your wealth. And so you need to give up everything in order to follow me. It's not for all of us, but like I always say that, right? Oh, it's not for all of us. Yeah, it is for some people, right? There are still uh, rich young rulers and, and rich old rulers out there who's, God is their money, and, and, you know, they need to give that up. But the, the idea is that Jesus says you're, you're overconfident in something. Your skill, your talent, your ability, your money, your savings, your retirement, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, your confidence can only ultimately be in him. Story this week out of Florida claims that employees of a Florida-based retail health company said J.P. Morgan Chase Bank suddenly terminated their personal and company bank accounts without explanation... One of the employees believes the account shutdowns were politically motivated due to their employer's controversial stand on COVID-19 and vaccinations. It's happening now, and it will continue to happen. Verse 11, tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves and make yourselves bare. Gird sackcloth on your waist. People shall mourn upon, which means they will beat their breasts for the fe- uh, pleasant fields and for the fruitful vine. I'm pretty sure there wasn't a sackcloth Barbie. That'd be a great seller, right? The Judean sackcloth Barbie. But the ladies in Judah were going to be clothed in sackcloth because of the mourning that would come upon them for the nation. Again, the Assyrians would be defeated, but not the Babylonians. God will not be mocked. Verse 13, on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted. The forts and the towers will become lairs. A a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Assyria would not succeed, but Babylon would. Now because we remain in these unredeemed bodies, we have an inclination to trust in things that are like our bodies, Fleshly, earthly, worldly, material, and physical. The answer to our outline question, do you put your confidence in the world, is yes. Even if you don't want to. Paul says in Romans 7 the things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I find myself doing because there's a struggle in the flesh. We're spiritual, born again. Holy Spirit lives inside us, but He lives inside these bodies of flesh. That will one day be glorified bodies, but right now they have a propensity to sin. They have a memory of sin. They draw us into sin with their lusts and their desires, you know, to be oversatisfied. And so we need to recognize. So, so much of the Christian life is recognizing something and asking the Lord to help you with it. And so all of us need to say, Lord, I, put a, I must put confidence in the flesh because I'm in the flesh. I'm a human being. So it's not, do I, but where do I? Will you show me, Lord, so that I don't want to walk away sad like the rich young ruler holding on to what I have and missing you? Do you put all your confidence in the Lord? Horatio Stafford's four-year-old son died not long after the Great Chicago Fire came in 1871 and ruined him. His business interests were further hit by the uh, downturn of 1873. He planned to travel to England with his family to attend D.L. Moody's upcoming evangelistic campaigns and to help out. In a late change of plans, he stayed behind on some business while he sent his family ahead, his wife and two daughters. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, their ship sank rapidly after a collision with another seaship. All four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him a now-famous telegram of two words, Saved Alone. As Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, his ship passed near where his daughters had died. He was inspired to write a hymn. Here's one line from it that you'll recognize. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well it is well with my soul. Can you say that? It is well with my soul? Well, if you're not a Christian, you can't. If you remain in unbelief that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead, it will never be well for your soul. You'll perish eternally and endure the second death in the lake of fire forever. If you're in Christ, you can always say, and you can live out, It is well with my soul. There's a sense in which it never matters what's happening outwardly. Now, it causes, there's consequences, there's things that happen, there's grieving, there's weeping, there's, you know, we're not denying the human experience, but in a sense, my circumstances, my situation, none of it matters. All that matters are eternal things. We uh, performed a uh, memorial service and a graveside service last week for Freddie Franco. And like all graveside services, what a joy it is to know that he'll live again in a body of a glorified body. He's alive now and present with the Lord, but he'll live again in a glorified body. And as I was out there, you know, I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be so great if if the Lord would come during a funeral? I've never I never actually thought about that before, but I thought, Lord, I'm going to pray that you come while I'm doing a graveside service. Because I can you imagine the absolute um, uh, terror of people who aren't Christians when the grave they're standing on somebody says oh, excuse me I'm on my way to heaven <laughs> right I mean it just think about the scope of the rapture and the resurrection from the dead and and you know and how real it is it's it's amazing the verses that remain catapult Judah and us into the far future verse one. Of chapter 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains, the king will be the messianic king. The princes are the other members of the messianic government. They will be characterized by righteousness and justice. You might wonder why I'm quoting Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum every week. Well, he's an authority on these things, but also I need to make sure I can still say Fruchtenbaum That's the only thing keeping me going. (laughs) Isaiah saw past our time, the church age, to the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble that we call the Great Tribulation. He saw when Jesus would set up a kingdom on earth that will last a thousand years before giving away to eternity. Verse 2, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The man is the man in verse 1 who will aid Jesus in the kingdom. Among others, it's you and me. We're going to co-rule with Jesus. We come back with him and we help him rule the millennial earth. Listen again to this empowering that we will have. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, a cover from a tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. I think this should be the mission statement for uh, what people call counseling or discipleship. Isn't this fantastic? Wouldn't it be wonderful if this is how we minister to one another all the time? That we could be a hiding place from people who have been beaten up by the wind, been out in the storm, covering them from the tempest, giving them the water of life and shadowing them or keeping them safe in a great rock in a weary land. That's how we ought to minister one to another, in that kind of power but also with that kind of Uh, comfort and that kind of compassion. And then I realized we can, to a certain extent, do these things already because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is the comforter. This is what he wants to do to help people, Christians and non-Christians, and we need only yield to him and say, Lord, how can I be a great rock in a weary land to this individual or in this situation? Verse three, the eyes of those who see will not be dim. The ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. Everyone in the millennial kingdom is going to be able to see, hear, understand, and repeat spiritual truth. I'm going to read verses 5, 6, and 7 in the contemporary English version. It says, fools will no longer be highly respected and crooks won't be given positions of honor. Fools talk foolishness. They always make plans to do sinful things to lie about the Lord, to let the hungry starve, to keep water from those who are thirsty. Cruel people tell lies. They do evil things and make cruel plans to destroy the poor and needy, even when they beg for justice. The Bible more than once encourages us to pray for our leaders. It doesn't preclude our recognizing when our leaders are fools and crooks. And uh, not just the United States. But in many countries in the world today, you step back and you'd have to, it doesn't matter what party you belong to or no party, this isn't about political affiliation at all. But you look at some of these men and women who lead their countries in some way, they're fools and they're crooks. They're liars. Their corruption is right in front of us now. And it's, our governments are so corrupt that the government adds to the corruption rather than seeking to root it out. God is understanding of this and he'll let a nation go for only so long. And then he'll bring his judgment. Verse 8, a generous man devises generous things and by generosity he shall stand. Your Bible might have the word noble for generous. According to E.W. Bullinger, generous means free-hearted or free-handed. What a great description of a person serving the Lord in the power of the indwelling spirit. Your heart is set free from sin and worry and anxiety and guilt. Your hand is willing to give all that you have or to come alongside and help in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, Gino explained wonderfully how as Christians we are free-spirited, and I really enjoyed that. Add to that, we're free-hearted and free-handed. We are the free-spirited, free-hearted, free-handed people of the world, right? My spirit is free in the sense that I'm empowered by Him, I've got a big heart towards people because the Lord has put it in me. I have His compassion, and I'm willing to help them. There's a theme song we could adapt uh, "Free Fallen by Tom Petty and put the put some other words in there, right? Nicky is already working on it, I'm sure. I'm free handed. I just like to sing. I make this stuff up so I can sing because I am a frustrated teen idol. Well, my brother, I know I'm way over time now, but my brother, I've explained to you before, Tony Penn. He was a teen idol. You don't believe me, but go on eBay and look for Tony Penn Records. That's my brother singing King or a Fool or some of those other songs. Local teen idol, which I should have been. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. This is the future kingdom. It's characterized by the Holy Spirit ministering in overdrive. Nature, us, and you will see incredible restoration. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, well-known phrase from our Declaration of Independence. In the future kingdom, the following superlatives will apply. Justice, righteousness, peace, quietness, and assurance. They will continue on into the eternity because it uses the word forever. Verse 18, my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Peace, quiet, security, rest. If you're in Christ, you ought to be weary in this world. Weary. Your spirit troubled by sin. But one day, we will be in a time of refreshing with the Lord. Verse 19, though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters and who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. The millennial kingdom, those thousand years, they're going to be a utopia, but not perfect. There can still be things like freak hailstorm accidents. While hail may destroy it only does it to non-believers. It'll be kind of like it was in Egypt uh, during the Exodus where the plagues bothered the Egyptians, but not the people of God. When Jesus returns in his second coming, we read that all Israel will be saved. Elsewhere, we're told that two-thirds of the nation will die during that time, but one-third will remain alive at the coming of the Lord. Multitudes of Gentiles are going to be saved in the Great tribulation as the gospel is preached. And these will become the subjects of Jesus dividing the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Unbelievers are like goats who are sent away to await everlasting destruction. Believers are God's sheep who go in in their mortal bodies to the kingdom and begin to live there and repopulate. Do you put all your confidence in the Lord? Do I? No. No because we're in these bodies of flesh, but we want to. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is to realize only two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself.